Welcome to The Field, a podcast of targeted trainings for child welfare professionals. I'm Cassie Gillespie. Join us as we chat with local experts about topics that are pertinent to child welfare in Vermont. So good morning or good afternoon, depending on when you chose to press play today. I'm Tabitha Moore. I am a training specialist here at the Child Welfare Training Partnership, and I'll be your host for today's episode on restorative practices. Today, I am joined by Kate Brayton, the Victim Service Director for the Major Crime Unit of the Vermont State Police, and Mark Wenberg, a restorative practices trainer and consultant here in Vermont. Kate and Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. I love working with both of you. Um, tell me and tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into restorative practices or restorative pr- approaches, restorative justice as a whole. How did you get into it? Um, so uh, thank you, Tabitha. Uh, this is Mark. And I got into it uh, quite honestly because it was a job when I first arrived back in Vermont in 2004. And I took a job at the Barry Community Justice Center, the Greater Barry Community Justice Center, in establishing, designing, establishing, and then implementing uh, a circle of support and accountability program. And it was one of the first programs in the state to adopt that model. Uh, and then subsequently became a director of a community justice center and then turned to independent consulting uh, about five years ago. Um, but I, I took pretty immediately to uh, the approach of restorative justice, and uh, it really resonated with me as a person and, and the previous work I had done. Mm-hmm. And I've had the privilege of getting to see you in action and work with you um, with our partners in um, youth justice, those folks that are doing the restorative um, justice work for Barge. So um, you are phenomenal, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today. So thank you, Mark. And Kate, tell us a little bit about how you got into it. So I think um, I'll dive deeply back for a second and just say that I was raised in a family in a, in a small town in Vermont where there was a very um, a very intense crime that happened when I was a child where two uh, young girls were attacked and one was killed and one survived. And mm. When that happened, my father was in law enforcement and was involved in the case. And I often thought as a child about um, how we help and serve victims of crime and how families are supported through trauma. And that led into working in social work. And during my social work education, I started to learn and think about restorative justice and about how we serve victims at that intersection of criminal justice and harm. Uh, And so I did my final project for my MSW on restorative justice and an internship through one of the first restorative justice programs in Vermont before the community justice centers were set up. And uh, through that, just fell in love with the the principles and the values of restorative justice and how they apply in so much um, of what we do. I later uh, started working with victims in different capacities and then became a director of a community justice center for a period of uh, several years before leaving there. So, Wow, that's incredible. Such a long history um, and so personal too. I really appreciate that. Um, I hear you saying the term restorative justice and folks listening have heard us say restorative justice, restorative practices, restorative approach. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference um, between them and you know what draws you to the term restorative justice in particular? Yeah, so uh, I think one of the, the the place to start is that instead of looking at uh, crime as a violation of law against the state, crime is a violation of relationships. And and it's interesting that Kate mentioned that that 
horrific crime because I was growing up at that period too. And I remember it vividly. And uh, so, and I was not in Essex. I was growing up in Waterbury Center. And so crime has a way of rippling out and impacting people in all sorts of different kinds of ways. So restorative justice is an approach that, first of all, recognizes that relationships are affected by harm and wrongdoing, and that that harm creates obligations and needs. Uh, and that the stakeholders, the people who are impacted by those, by those events, uh, get to define what those obligations and needs are. So it's not about a state mitigating punishment. It's about the people who are most impacted by events having the opportunity to share those impacts and their stories with the people who committed the harm. And then out of that process of dialogue, uh, there is an, there's a set of, of responses that allow people who've committed harm to take responsibility and make amends to the people who they most directly affected. And so restorative justice is really about engaging uh, the stakeholders connected to uh, specific incidents um, to enter into a facilitated dialogue to look for a way through and then beyond what took place. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks, Mark. Um, I heard you say that restorative justice is about violation of relationships, not about violation of law. Kate, could you talk a little bit more about that? And what are some of the things that um, distinguish restorative justice from punitive justice? Yeah, um, I think kind of looking at the word justice and the word justice itself, I think, has been... Um, I don't think hijacked is the right word, but it's been taken by the criminal justice system. And that's what we use kind of as a de definition of the criminal justice system. That word justice is kind of very um, attached to criminal process. But when I think about justice in terms of restorative justice, I think about just relationships and how we are in relationship to others and how we are in relationship to our community and where um, those relationships intersect we're looking at those um, and restoring them so that they are just in that way. So um, when you're thinking about it that way, it really encompasses harm. And crime is a type of harm that's formalized into a system. And so we can use restorative justice in a criminal justice system as an augmentation or an alternative to that system. But when we're talking about restorative justice in a larger sense, we're talking about how we in our human relationships harm each other and how that harm is manifested through those relationships and how we can get back to a just platform in those relationships. I really appreciate that perspective because what it does is it it brings it back to more people. It makes it about, the, like you said, the harm in the community, that it's not just about um, a system which doesn't necessarily feel anything, but about the people and, and what happens to them. Um, I run it. So just to add to that a little bit, I run across this in my work uh, because I have a really supportive uh, command staff who allows me to define the work that I do in a way that some people can't. And uh, one of the things we run into often is who is considered a victim mm -hmm. in a crime. And especially when I work mainly homicides, uh, the victim has died and their family and friends and loved ones become those who have har been harmed. And they're classified as legal victims for programming, but what you often find is those most impacted by that homicide aren't necessarily the next of kin, depending right. on the relationships that existed before. So it takes, you know, to be able to take in 
all of the systems. And I think this is very true for DCF, that often we find relationships for children aren't necessarily defined by legal relationships, but defined by those who are putting the care and attention in that, that and creating safety for children. And that's what um, goes back to that concept of just relationships that you were talking about? Yeah, and, and who, you know, who is harmed. And I think that definition of who is harmed is much broader than we think of it in legal terms. In legal yeah. terms, there's a identified victim who might receive, um, you know, some kind of reparation. But when we think about restorative justice in terms of relationships, and we think about those who are harmed, that that ripple gets much much bigger and we actually get to see those ripples in a different way. Right. And then those people get attention where they may not have before. Right. Okay. And it's not the state that, again, as Kate is saying, it's not the state who determines who's harmed. It's people themselves who have the opportunity to bring their their the their experiences and their needs forward. So it is a it it broadens the understanding of how a harm and wrongdoing impacts whole communities. It sounds like it's about valuing people over systems. And um, that sounds like it's probably a pretty important value of um, restorative justice. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the other um, values that support or emerge from restorative justice principles? Sure. I, and um, what I, what, one of the things I really appreciate about a re- restorative justice is it's a, very, it's a very human approach. And it's something that uh, it's not a language that you necessarily have to learn. It's something that actually emerges out of us as people, uh, in part because we are sensitive to the fact that we've, we, we have all suffered harm at one point or another in our lives. And in all likelihood, we have all harmed other people at one point in our lives. And mm-hmm. so uh, the, the values that under, underpin restorative justice are values that, um, such as healing, that uh, restorative justice can create an environment in which people can heal from events. Um, reconciliation, uh, where there's a rupture, there's an opportunity for reconciliation. Respect, uh, respect uh, can be a little bit tricky, but but that dialogues are grounded that everyone who is coming together for for a dialogue uh, have the the right to be respected, regardless of what their role is in that particular event. Um, safety, uh, that people in order to have these these type of intimate conversations that are often intimate, uh, because as as we often know, crime isn't necessarily committed between two people who don't know each other. Often it's committed by people who do know each other. So uh, people need to be able to f- uh, feel safe to be able to share their experiences in a way that that is is most true to themselves. It's about responsibility. It's about support. And it's also about listening, which I think is one of those uh, key aspects of our sort of process is that um, it's an opportunity to speak, but it's also really an opportunity to listen and, and, and hear from, um, if it's done well, from a heart-centered place about how you've impacted other people. Thank you. You said something that, that stood out to me um, when you said um, people who harm um, have also been harmed. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that um, related to restorative justice? And what does that look like if you are the person who's done the harm? Um, what is the intention there? I think the intention, uh, and and actually, it's it's actually something that often comes out in restorative dialogues. Is often people who who've been harmed and with a specific event want to know why, you know, why did this? Why did you do this? Why did this happen? And and that actually invites an opportunity for the people who committed the harm to share a little bit more about their context and their lives. 
so that it actually gives valuable information to the people who um, may have suffered harm by this person. It doesn't excuse what took place, but it does provide context. Uh, I think one of the most interesting areas of restorative justice uh, that is sometimes pursued and sometimes not pursued is uh, questions of social justice. And what are those elements of, of in context within communities that lead to harm and wrongdoing? And it's, it's a very important part of conversation that uh, isn't always brought into some of the um, specific restorative dialogues, but I think it's, it's something where it's a direction we need to head uh, as a movement. Kate, you ask you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would add to that um, one, of the, one of the really interesting things that's tied to what Mark is saying is also the role of forgiveness in restorative justice. And often the examples of restorative justice that we see in media, whether it's um, in a YouTube video or a training, are those restorative justice um, situations where there's a moment of forgiveness from victim to um, offender or harmer. And uh, that is not necessary in the restorative process for it to be successful. And I've seen more often than not restorative processes that are transformative, but don't include forgiveness. And it's not an expectation that we should have on people who have been harmed to reach that. And I think some people do that. They, uh, you know, they want to reach that forgiveness because it feels transformative for everybody in the room. Um, But that's not the intent of restorative justice. The intent is to have a really authentic dialogue that really um, honors where people are at and what, what they need regardless of, of whether the outcome is something the facilitators want, if that makes right. sense. And I often think about that before I go into a restorative process, that what are my hopes for this? But really, those are secondary um, to what the hopes of the participants are. And that sounds like that's the social justice piece, is allowing the needs of the people in the room, in particular those who've been harmed, to um, guide the process a bit. Is that an accurate way to say that? Yeah, and to let them set the set the expectations and benchmarks for themselves rather than having us kind of transfer onto them. I, I think that's a really important point, Kate. Uh and I think that's one of the one of the uh important that's one of the reasons why grounding ourselves and maybe we're jumping ahead here, but grounding ourselves in the principles and values are so important as facilitators of restorative process. Because yeah. We can bring our own agendas without it if we don't if we don't return to what is the purpose and the values and the principles of these processes, we can inject ourselves. And uh, you know, there's there's I myself am often guilty of wanting to fix things. As a facilitator of a restorative process, it's not my job to fix things. It's my job to create a space where the people who hold who have the greatest stake in what took place have the opportunity to quote unquote fix things as they see, as they define what it means to fix. Right. And that gets complicated, um, you know, if we're looking at the context of DCF and child safety. There are some expectations around child safety that need to be met. And so holding those two things of creating a process that is um, defined by and held by the people most impacted at the same time having a system that is has to ensure child safety, it can get tricky. And it, you know, and I think one of the things for DCF that's really important is that um, the use of teaming within DCF 
allows for those conversations to happen so that you have, um, you know, similar to your um, safety meetings, you have bottom lines, Mm -hmm. like there are bottom lines. And in a restorative family group conferencing, you can have those bottom lines, but then allow for much more um, agency for the family or stakeholders. Kate, you mentioned restorative family group conferencing. Could you talk a little bit about just for a second, what is that? So it's, you know, a, a, process that's based in restorative principles where uh, it's a family safety meeting that includes stakeholders and includes some bottom lines that uh, an agency might need to have met in order for child safety to be achieved and gives the folks in the room tools to be able to spend time alone to create a plan that meets the needs of the child and family and the needs of the agency for safety on their own before intervention and structured programming is to put is put in place. It gives families the opportunity to create their own solution before we go and fix it for them or try to fix it for them in the way that we do with structured plans. And it's extremely uh, heavily used in other countries and um, we've been trying to, to use it more in Vermont. We've done a few trainings and we've kind of had some starts and stops along the way. Um, but it's really a way to give more power to the stakeholders and to those most impacted by the child safety intervention by the state in order for them to to use their own tools and, and understand their own strengths to to solve their own safety issues. And so there's a structure to it. It's a longer, you know, a longer conversation, but yeah. there's a structure to it. And there are, uh, there's a, you know, the thing about fa- restorative family group conferencing is that there is a lot of pre-work. And in any restorative process, um, there is there is a significant amount of pre-work that allows for relationship building and allows for you to leverage the relationships in the room to for positive outcomes. And because this is a relational set of values and principles and a relational um, practice, that time is really necessary and important. That makes sense. Yeah, there's, uh, um, uh, I just want to build mm-hmm. very quickly on that is, is one of the um, practices that I feel uh, most drawn to is circle practice. And uh, there is a classic, what they, uh, um, from the, in circle practice language of a medicine wheel, uh, the medicine wheel being an, uh, essentially a, an entire circle process but uh, one of the core values is you spend as much time building relationship and connection uh, between the people, the participants in, in that circle as you do addressing the core issues at hand and seeking resolution to those core issues at hand. Because as Kate is referencing, those relationships allow people to work through the difficult stuff. It's what makes uh, lasting solutions, uh, resolutions possible because, because it's built on um, connection as opposed to imposed some type of imposed solution. So meeting them where they are, meeting the people where they are. And, and I think as Kate said earlier, kind of honoring that um, where they are with the harm. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, the practices that put restorative justice values and principles into action. Yeah, there's. so we've already talked about a couple. Uh, restorative family group conferencing, circle practices, there's panel meetings, there's victim offender dialogue. Uh, There are any number of different practices uh, that bring forward the values and principles of restorative justice. And so a lot of it is based upon who's involved, how many people are involved, uh, what are the issues at hand, 
And so you, so you can choose, practices are sort of like a tool. Uh, and so you can choose the tool which best meets the particular situation. Um, and so, as I was mentioning, one of my favorites is, is circle processes. But circle processes, frankly, are serious time investments. And so uh, you may not always have that amount of time, but it doesn't mean that you can't bring uh, restorative values and principles into even just a conversation or a dialogue with a young person or with a family or, uh, or with uh, a, a victim as well. Okay, that makes sense. Kate, did you have anything that you wanted to add there? Um, I, I would just uh, reiterate what Mark said. You know, anywhere that there is harm, within relationships, there can be restorative work. And mm -hmm. it might not look like a program or a practice that we've uh, set up as a scaffolding to have restorative work happen. Mm -hmm. It could be within a conversation, within a day, within a cl the client work that somebody's already doing. And when I think about a DCF um, or family services in particular, it is um, a system of child safety that's based on relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, as a former social worker who worked uh, for uh, DCF and family services, the best cases I worked were the ones where I was able to create connection and relationship with the families that I worked with. And that foundation and using restorative practices or values within that relationship is, uh, is how you get through the tough stuff. Because I know that for... Uh, a child safety social worker, you know, much of their job is having very difficult conversations with family and telling them really hard things to hear. And if you can take some of the restorative values and recognize the harm that that caused, even if you're not accountable for that harm or responsible, you can still use restorative values to help um, acknowledge and validate the harm. And so I think there's so many opportunities within the system to do that, uh, that we're missing and that we could uh, be doing more of. And um, and so I just think about that a lot in terms of how, you know, how we think about it as practice, like, can we insert a specific practice into our work? But for me, more importantly, how do we think about harm within the families we work with? And how can we start talking about that in a way that doesn't feel so bad? And that sounds like it's in a, re a restorative approach. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah and I just want to add something. And, and you know, I, uh, I'm looking at right now this document called Seven Core Assumptions, and it goes with uh, the circle practice. And these are uh, uh, value statements such as the true self in everyone is good, wise, and powerful, or all human beings have a deep desire to be in good relationship. And what I uh, appreciate about these, these value statements is they challenge our assumptions. So I, I think what can happen sometimes when we work within systems or when we even when we don't work within systems, we can start to develop some assumptions about the people who we work with. Uh, and, and those assumptions lead us to approach them in a certain certain type of way. And I think if, if we, at least, at the very least, if we check our assumptions before we walk through a door, we might view the people who we work with in, within a different light. And I think that's a really important part of, of this work. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier about making sure that it's not our needs or our agenda that's driving the process. It's got to be coming from the people. Mm -hmm. And that ties back into the concepts that you were both talking about related to social justice and the need to understand yourself um, before you even try a restorative approach um, so that you understand where those potential pitfalls can be. 
Okay. All right. I get it. Um, and you just touched on this briefly, the, the difference between restorative approach and restorative justice. Do you mind just um, looping back on that real quick? Yeah, I think I enter, I can, I think I'll talk about a little bit about my work now. So okay. um, you, it's surprising to hear that now that I work almost exclusively in homicide cases, my work feels more restorative than when I was the director of a community justice center. And it's surprising because the community justice center had a whole bunch of restorative programming and practices that we implemented on a daily basis to, um, you know, tackle harms within the community. And that work was amazing, and I enjoyed it a lot. In homicide, I come into the case after the harms happened. And in that way, it's similar to child protection work, where we come into the life of a family after the abuse or neglect have happened. It's been reported and substantiated through our, pro- you know, through our process. And so in that, I know that I can go in and I can anticipate all of this harm that's happened. Um, and I can anticipate what law enforcement are going to do in the in their investigation. And I can anticipate that it's going to feel violating. It's going to feel hard and it's going to create more harm in the process of investigating a homicide. We create more harm. We are intrusive. We have a crime scene that somebody can't go to for, so they lose their housing for days on end. Uh, we're taking their phones and their computers for our investigation. So we do a lot of intrusive work around the investigation that causes more harm to the family system. And I can anticipate that and name it and validate it and try to find really creative ways to work around. As a community member, as a support person, I can witness that harm and and as a supportive person, figure out how to make it less impactful. So I feel like that part is, is taking those restorative values of recognizing the harm, understanding it, validating and asking what they need and what they want and giving as much choice and power as possible. And I think that is a, a fairly... Uh, parallel position that social workers are in when they come upon a family where a child has been removed and that harm has happened. And then you have an entity in that family's life with a case plan and court hearings and other things. And we can anticipate some of the harm that happens from the system. And that harm is happening in service to very good things. In my case, hopefully arresting somebody who's, who's causing serious harm in the community. And in their case, uh, holding accountable people who are causing harm to children. So within that context, I think there are a lot of ways that we could recognize the harm that the system creates, whether it's a child removal, a transition between homes, a transition from one foster family to another, from a residential to a new foster family, to kinship, transition of schools, that happens a lot, loss of family, loss of friends, if you do have to change school systems. Like there's a lot of areas specific to child placement where I think we can anticipate the harm and start to validate and name it um, and work restoratively within it. And to me, that is more of, you know, restorative practice or restorative approach than it is restorative programming. Does that make sense? It, it makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like there's a lot of benefits to naming the harm that we do as practitioners, even though, you know, we're in there for the purpose of safety, mm-hmm. um, which is a great goal. It sounds like when we dig deeper and, and consider um, all these other pieces of harm, it, it might allow us to um, approach the work differently, mm-hmm. um, maybe be more empathetic. Were there some? I saw you, Mark. Were you going to say something? You no, know, I was just going to. I, I want to first of all appreciate what Kate was saying about uh, 
the work that she's doing now, um, timing is so important when people are engaged in a restorative way. And uh, for a lot of the cases that come through restorative justice in Vermont, the timing is actually, there's quite a lag, frankly, between when an incident takes place and when there's a restorative approach that comes in or a restorative mm -hmm. program or a restorative process. So the fact that Kate is able to employ these values and principles when a crime takes place in a very serious crime, I think that's that's a remarkable commitment on the state of the Vermont uh, to do that. The thing I want to add is that um, a different an another way of uh, considering also the restorative approach is that uh, it's not only responding when there's harm, it's a tool, it's a process, it's an approach that can be used to prevent harm, to build mutual held expectations that are not imposed upon people, but actually come from, from groups of people within themselves. So schools are using restorative approaches now, not just to respond to when there's wrong harm in the classroom, but to build a, uh, a healthy classroom community. Uh, and so they often talk about tiers, tier, the tiered approach. And that first basic foundation is that tier where you still use restorative practices, but you're using restorative practices to um, build uh, relationships between people so that when, if and when harm occurs, people are also, they're ready to use those practices to address the harm. And then when there's the most serious harm that takes place, there are also practices by which someone can, if they're removed from a community, they can come back into that community through a restorative uh, approach. So. so looking at it from assisted, like integrating restorative approaches and um values into your system, into the very fabric of what you do, um, can make it easier so that when an incident does occur, um, you're already ready. And then the question would be for districts is, how do you do that? How are you incorporating um, restorative values into um, your daily fabric? Do either of you have any thoughts about how that might happen? Yeah, Kate? And Mark? Yeah. So, um being a social worker, especially when it comes to child abuse and neglect, is probably the most under-resourced, undervalued, overworked group of people that I've ever had been a part of. Um, and it is, you know, nobody who's doing child protection work is in it for the money um, or the glory of it all. Because what happens is you're working with communities and folks that are, are have been harmed and haven't worked through that or had um, any attention to that harm. And what they do is they harm, right? Mm -hmm. And so often the social worker is in the position of being harmed in their job on a daily basis, whether it's being screamed at on the phone, whether it's being dismissed, um, or just not valued. And so I think if you start within the DCF community, within the FSD family, to really work restoratively with the team of social workers who, um, even though they handle it beautifully, are being harmed daily by the work that they're doing. I think naming and acknowledging that and approaching that will in turn allow for them to approach their work with those same values. But I think that is the, that's the work that needs to happen first in order to, for it really to, to take hold. That would be, um, that would be what I would, where I would start. Hmm. It sounds like that's really important to building a strong, secure base. Um, for workers. Thank you. And Mark? What I, I can't uh, add much more than that, uh, other than to say that, um, you know, I th I think as workers, if if you can question the work you're doing, view the work you're doing through the lens of restorative justice, that may change how you do some of it. I mean, where is the opportunity to safely allow families to make decisions? 
uh, for the for the for the people who they care for uh, in a safe way. How can you empower uh, uh, people who often have not been heard by systems to be heard? How do you create environments where part of your work is just to listen? And and I and I'm, I know this all takes place, so I'm not questioning that this takes place. But I just think that um, through a a lens uh, of restorative principles and practices, there's probably an opportunity for for us all to change some of the ways, some of the some of the habits may have that have been built up over time uh, in the work that we do. And and when you actually, I'm really glad that you said that about you know looking at this as a lens through which to do the work. Um, there's and Kate, you know, you talked about um, the demand on um, DCF workers and just the way that they are harmed continually throughout the process um, as well. Um, if we are going to try to be more restorative or to implement restorative principles in the daily work, um, there's already so much um, expectation, as you said. And um, if our listeners have been listening to some of the other podcasts, we're saying, you know, do all this, do all this. What are your um, thoughts or ideas about how staff could um, begin to implement restorative principles in their daily work? Yeah, so I've always loved the concept of um, transition circles for kids who are transitioning from placements. And I think that's a, a, a nice way to to play with the values and the principles. And it's a fairly um, routine uh thing that happens anyway, but if you had a farewell circle from the family you were moving from, regardless of what the outcome of that of that living situation was, whether it was a short-term placement or whether a child blows out of that placement behaviorally, um, having a closing circle where those circle questions are about what they value in each other, what they learned from each other, how much they're going to miss each other. If a child could leave a placement with those feelings and then go to a new placement and that circle could be, here are the norms of our home. Here are our expectations. Here's how excited we are to have you and welcome you into our home. And here's, we, we want to hear what your expectations of us are and what are the things you need to know. And if if we could structure those dialogues to be um, really restorative and, you know, have a restorative lens. Um, and I would expect this is already happening some, but I don't know how consistently it's happening because I know that when I was at DCF, we talked about this as um, a possibility. So <clears throat> something like that might be a, a piece where somebody could start that work and see how well it worked and start to branch out into other spaces. Okay. And I would just add it um, we're, we're, uh, internally as well. And I think Kate was talking about mm-hmm. this. I um, I can only imagine the the the... the experiences that these social workers are carrying with them in the work that they do. And are there opportunities for circle processes within staff uh, that allow f- folks to uh, bring down some of the, let go of some of the, the stress and, and, and the experiences that they're, that they're holding um, and sharing it in, a, in a, an environment with colleagues who are going through the same thing. So how can how can restorative practices be implemented in your offices to support your teamwork and your own health and well-being? I think it's also important. So I just want to add on to that, Mark, having been in some circles um, in DCF. Circles, one of the most important things about circles is, again, the pre-work, the creation of questions that allow people to go deeply into those spaces 
and creating the safety to do that. And I and I have been in circles where um, people weren't trained in circles, but felt like they could do circles, and that that the question development was missed, or there were pieces of the circle that were missed. And so I do think that um, there is certainly a you know a need for training. Circles look simple, but in fact can be really complicated to develop and to maintain and to facilitate or keep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that I think um, I, I just want to add that about circles. Yeah. I, I'm glad that you. Oh, go no, ahead, I, just, Mark. I, I appreciate you saying that, Kate. Um, the uh, these these values and principles are spring from our natural human experience, but the actual facilitation of them is a skill, and it's a skill that comes with practice. And pra- in practice, yeah. there's learning. Uh, and so, um, I often say, if you're just starting out, don't dive into the deep end. Take a take a wade in the pool and see what it's like and learn from it and then go a couple steps deeper. Uh, and and I also want to appreciate, as Kate was saying, um, circles can go bad if they're done poorly and it can turn people off to them or restorative practices yep. for that matter. Broaden it to restorative practices that aren't done well can turn people off to what a restorative practice is when it's actually not an accurate reflection. And I think that would that would be unfortunate to say the least. Right. I didn't do a circle on my own for a long time. I always had somebody more seasoned than me in the chair next to me mm-hmm. <laughs> because I felt, you know, it gave me confidence and I felt like they could carry. If I dropped something, they'd be able to pick it up. Agreed. Okay. So if I'm listening to this podcast, which I am, I'm, I'm doing it with you, and I'm totally bought into everything you're saying, I think, you know, restorative practices, restorative approaches, restorative values. Like, yes, I am sold, but I'm also hearing that maybe I probably shouldn't just jump in and start doing them. What advice do you have for FSWs who are out there right now listening to this who want to get in? How how can they potentially um, kind of dip their toe in the water? I'd say, I, go ahead, Kate, please. Oh, um, I would just say that I think you can start thinking restoratively, even if you're not practicing a circle process itself. So thinking about the restorative principles, and it might be that you print them out and you keep them with you, or it might be that you read a good, you know, book on restorative justice or restorative values or practices. And Mark and I could certainly uh, create a list of, of those types of resources. There's some great books about circles and what's important about them. There's some great, you know, books about specific practices or, you know, about restorative, uh, you know, practice in general and restorative justice. And I would add training, you know. Yep. Uh, I think uh, training is very valuable, particularly if you follow it up quickly with practice. So from training to practice, and and again, even that initial practice uh, is, um, again, like I say, don't dive into the deep end. Start out, find someone who else, as Kate was saying, find someone who's, who has more experience than you to work with. Uh, to be mentored by, uh, I've I certainly have learned how to do so, uh, circle practices by my mentors um, mm-hmm. and by training. So I think both those are helpful. So if I'm listening and I'm excited, and then I hear I should probably slow it down, maybe what I could do is start looking at some of the resources that you mentioned. We'll be sure to include that um, in a link when we post this podcast. Maybe start to look at my own values and beliefs and how those might play into. Um, you know, my thoughts about restorative uh, justice um, and start doing some of that internal reflection. Um, those are some um, some really great ideas that the two of you have. Um, and I know I really appreciate them. Go ahead, Kate. I would just add um, 
one of the ways to train that muscle memory in your brain is to look at a situation you're in, anticipate the potential harm, name it and validate it. Like that is something that I do consistently in my work. I, I see what's coming ahead. I name it. I validate it. Um, and we get we go from there. So I think that's a, a muscle memory that gets created mm. and something somebody can start immediately. Okay, so something you could train yourself to start doing now, just thinking about and anticipating potential harm in a situation yeah. um, and how it's going to impact people. That's yeah. great. Uh, Mark, anything to add there? Or for both of you, and, um, Kate, I'm coming back to you in a second. Um, we're about to end our podcast. We know that you know everybody's listening. They're charged up. We've listened to podcasts before, and we know that we're going to lose a lot of what we heard. What one or two kind of final closing statements, if people are going to forget most of what you said today, what are one or two things that you just want to make sure that they know about restorative approaches? Uh, um, sorry, restorative approaches, restorative justice. I would say for me, uh, start at the foundation, start with the values and the principles. And um, I will put up the seven core assumptions, what we believe to be true, uh, which is put out by the uh, Kay Pranis and Carolyn Boys Watson. Because uh, I just, I feel like it's not only an aspiration, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to us as people and how we do our work. Um, and it doesn't mean that we have to necessarily adopt all those those values there. But, but they are great ways to check ourselves. And so I just think that's a great place to start. And if that leads you in further from there, great. I think that would be a, a good place to start. Thanks, Mark. Kate? I think I would simply want people to be thinking about the fact that harm happens between people and it happens, um, you know, it's not, it, it's not, harm is not owned by the criminal justice system and justice is not owned by the criminal justice system. That harm and justice are relational concepts and that this is, this restorative approach and restorative justice is about the harm and the justice in those relationships. Some great advice. Thank you. Kate Brayton, Mark Wenberg, thank you so much for talking with us today about restorative justice. We appreciate so much your expertise and the work that you're doing to refocus um, relationships, to recenter relationships um, when it comes to um, justice. So this has been an episode of Welcome to the Field with the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership. If you found this podcast useful, hop on over to our website, the Vermont CWTP, and check it out. Um, not just this podcast, but some of our others as well. You also find the micro learning that Kate and Mark um, are doing with practitioners in the field on the topic of restorative practices. And you may want to give that um, just a glance over if you're um, aching for more on the topic of restorative practices. Thank you, Mark and Kate, again for being with us. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Tabitha. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any ideas about topics that you want us to cover or episodes that you're interested in hearing, shoot us a message. You can reach me by email at cassie.gillespie at uvm.edu, or you can leave us a comment on the webpage where you downloaded this podcast. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. And a special thank you to Brickdrop for composing and recording our music. See you next time.